Thank you. Let's take God's word together, please, and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we return to this uh, great epistle of hope, this letter written by the Apostle of Hope. And I trust tonight that this will be an encouraging sermon that will edify and uplift you. I remind you that the Apostle Peter is writing to the persecuted believer, the early church. And I, I sometimes wonder what it was to live uh, in those days when the early church was first established, especially in those days when, when uh, people were being called out of, out of darkness, called out of religion, and into a true relationship with God, something that religion can never offer. Would you look this way for a moment? Religion, and that, by the way, can even be found in our own congregation, in our own meetings. Denominationalism, traditionalism, orthodox, orthodoxy cannot give you a relationship with Christ. And it's a poor substitute for a relationship with Christ. There's many good things that can be found in each one of those names and titles. Many good things, but those things are not substitutes for a relationship with the Savior. If you think more highly of a denomination than you do of a walk with Christ, then you're in trouble. If you cling more tightly to tradition than you do to an intimacy with the Savior, then you have a lot of problems. And this is what Peter is writing to a people who grew up steeped in tradition, steeped in religion, steeped in culture. And they've been called out of that into that which was real, a real, lively walk with Christ. And because they were surrounded with persecution, I'm sure that many of them were doubting, maybe wondering if they'd made the wrong decision. And they needed to be encouraged. And this letter was written to bring hope and encouragement to such a people. The Western Christian church has experienced relatively little kickback or persecution over the last, well, really for many centuries. And therefore, we do not really know what it is to be persecuted. And because of that, I think it's rare sometimes, it's rare to find believers who are really warmly walking with the Savior. It's rare. One early church father once wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And it is often through persecution that the church really grows. We have, we have measured church growth by the number, of, the number of people that cram into air-conditioned stadiums and buildings on a Sunday. But yet they walk out of those same buildings and go home and prop their feet up on a Sunday afternoon to watch the football match with popcorn and with very little thought of Christ and God besides that brief time in the building. That's not real Christianity. What we look at in this portion of Scripture uh, entitles for us what a real believer is. We've looked at how the children of God are lively stones. We talked about how they were meant to be. We're meant to be like newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the word. We're told that the 
believer, the true child of God is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Let's read together again, refreshing our minds from verse number one of chapter two, then we'll come to another encouraging portion. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Stop reading there tonight. Verse number 10, Peter is bringing to an end this list of description, descriptions that serve to remind and spark in the heart and mind of these persecuted believers who they are. And this last one, this last word, this last phrase in this list of these 10 verses, I believe may be sort of the capstone of them all. Look what it says in verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. The people of God. Now, the people of God. Can I ask you, would you look here? Can I ask you this evening, can you honestly say and enthusiastically say that you are one of the people of God? Amen. I hope you can. There's no greater joy, no greater title than to be called one of the people of God. It's an amazing sequence, really three phrases there at the end of verse number nine, two in verse number 10. You, that, look, at, look at the end of verse number nine, the last phrase that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What a title, what a description. 
People have worked hard to earn a title for themselves, to earn a reputation for themselves. Uh, that's a man of action, maybe some may say, or that's a, a woman of integrity. That kind of a thing. We think of it all the time. If you have a, maybe you're known, we've been working, laboring together at Crown Hall with some of the other uh, ministers and pastors, and, and some people have preferences to what tools they use, and and uh, that's a Dewalt man, or that's a Festool man, that kind of a thing. You earn a name and reputation for yourself depending on uh, something that marks you. That's a family man or a career woman. You get what I mean? Oh, perhaps marking some achievement, some great title, but this title beats them all. I'd rather be known by this than any other title, any other self-made title that I could ever find on this planet. Oh, to be called the people of God. And you can word it any you want. That's a child of God. Every once in a while you go to some cultures or in some places and they refer to a minister as a man of God. Well, really the truth is if, if you've been born again, you are a man of God or a woman of God because you are one of the people of God. Yeah. What a title. To be called a one of the people of God. I wonder this evening, can you claim it? Do you know it? That you belong to him. It's interesting when considering what it is to be a part of the people of God. It's all of those previous titles rolled into one. All of those previous privileges put down beneath that banner of the people of God. It's as if Peter said, look, I can't get any better than this. I've given you title after title, inheritance after inheritance, blessing after blessing. Let's sum it all up by saying, you're the people of God. And he leads into that thought by saying, you were called out of darkness. That we should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I want you to think about that. It's been the subject of our conversation in the previous weeks, especially when we looked at Ephesians. But think for a moment with me. The people of God are the people of God because they've been called out of darkness. Would you look here for a moment? If you are still living in darkness and you are not one of the people of God, you're not. The people of God used to be in darkness. They used to be in darkness. If you remember some of the previous verses that we've looked at in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, uh, a, a referring, um, you could say very much um, to the, prophetically to the coming of the Savior, but the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. You see, part of being called out of darkness is understanding where you were. We weren't just... You could say a victim of darkness, although that's true. We relished it. We walked in it. You, your ways, you walked in darkness. Your steps were in darkness. You weren't, you weren't a victim of it all, trying to get out of darkness and, and uh, really wanting to be a good boy or a good girl. No, you were walking in darkness. Your very steps were dark steps. You chose the path that you would trod, and it was a dark path. We walked in darkness. It goes on in the same verse, and it says, not only that, but they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, we lived in darkness. We lived in the shadow, and that darkness was the shadow of death. 
the darkness of death. And I remind you that the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence, the heavy cloud of darkness that resides over top of an unbeliever is that consequence of sin. We lived in it. You lived in it. Maybe you're still living in it now. Matthew chapter 4 verse 16 says, the people that sat in darkness. My children are, are, are funny to watch sometimes. For some reason, my children look for the dirtiest, muddiest place they can find. And if there isn't mud, they make mud. And Sunday was proof and evidence of that. The dustiest, driest day of the year. And there was Paxson making mud. I don't know why. It's in our nature to sit in it. To sit in dirt. To sit in darkness. And we laugh. It's, it's, it's cute when a little child sits in, in dirt and mud. But when an adult... A grown man or a grown woman sits in filthiness, sits in sin and darkness. Something wrong. The people that sat in darkness. If you remember, we were looking in the book of Ephesians about uh, learning how to sit and learning how to walk and learning how to stand. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we, we, we looked at the exhortation to walk as children of light. The previous phrase says for ye were sometimes darkness ye were darkness it wasn't just that you walked in darkness and sat in darkness and lived in darkness you were dark yourself everything about you was dark your mind was dark and twisted and warped your heart and will and desires were dark do you remember that do you remember that darkness in the same chapter, in verse number 11 of Ephesians chapter 5, and the scriptures say, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Can I just remind you that you weren't just living in darkness, but you were working in darkness. And the works of darkness are unfruitful. And if you've lived in darkness, and you continue to live in darkness now, you'll understand that the fruit of darkness, the works of darkness, is very unfruitful. It brings about death and destruction. The works of darkness, they bring forth no life. The works of darkness have no power to bring forth anything that is edifying or anything that is life-giving. It's simply destructive. I remember, you've heard me tell you before, but when I was 17 years old, I was approached by a little old man and he told me that if I didn't change my ways... I would wake up either in prison or in hell. He understood that the works of darkness only lead to destruction. They bring forth no life. And Paul, Peter, is reminding these believers that we were called out of that. It's interesting, the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 gives us a little bit more insight about what we used to be. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. Would you look here for a moment? Darkness has a power over a soul. So that even if the soul did want to be delivered, it couldn't. Darkness has such a power over a man's soul that... Have you ever been lost in the dark? Have you ever been caught without lights or 
no matter how much you want light, no matter how much you want to see when it's pitch black, if you don't have light, you can't. Without the presence of light, no matter how much you want to see, you cannot see. There's a power that darkness has over a man, over a woman, over a soul. And the scriptures say that the only way out of that darkness is to be called out of that darkness and into the light. And that's what happened. If you've been born again, if you're a child of the living God, you were called out of darkness and into the light. You were called out of one standard and way of living and into another. Growing up, I can remember my mother had a very, I'm not going to try to mimic it, but she had a very special call when we were out playing in the woods or out on the property somewhere. We had 10 acres of land. Growing up when I was seven years old, we moved from the trailer park. We took the trailer out of the trailer park and plopped it on top of a hill in the middle of 10 acres. And we went from being trailer park trash, as they called us, to being hillbillies. But uh, there we were, living in the middle of 10 acres of land, and my mother had a very special call that would arouse the attention of anyone within a 10-mile radius. And she would call us. I won't do it right now. And uh, we knew when we heard that, we were being called. When that call came out, we were being called. I was being called out of the woods and into the house. It was a simultaneous call being called out of where I was and into where I should be. And that's what took place when the grace of God came to you. With one call, God called you out of darkness and into light. That's what takes place when God saves a soul. And every once in a while, people just struggle with it. They just doubt it. They're just not sure. Is it really God's voice? Is it really him that's calling me? I don't know of anyone else who'd want to call you out of darkness and into light. It's God. Just trust him. Just believe it. I don't believe Satan's trying to call you out of darkness. Sometimes people say, but you might be deceiving yourself. I don't believe Satan is trying to call you out of darkness. It's God who calls a man and a woman out of darkness, a child even, and into his marvelous, I like the end, his Marvelous light, not yours. It's no self-deception. You're being called into his marvelous. That word marvelous means extraordinary. No normal light. Surprising. That's what it means. Being called into his extraordinary light, his surprising light. That's what you've been called into. Like something you've never known before. That's when you know it's of God. Luke chapter 1 verse 79 says we were given light. It's amazing. All of these thoughts that come together. He calls us out of light. We are given light. Galatians chapter 5 verse 8 and 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 4 says we become the children of light because we are begotten by light. Because if you remember, Jesus is the light of the world. If we've been been born again, then we've been begotten by the light. And in John chapter 8, the Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We've been called out of darkness and into Christ, who is the light of the world. Now, can I ask you tonight, are you living in the light? Are you walking in it? And then he brings, he leads right on from that into the very next. The very next verse, in fact, if you notice at the end, it's one continuous verse. At the end of verse 9, into verse 10, 
who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. And so now Peter takes it a little bit further. Because these people who were, he's speaking to Jews, Jewish converts, they thought that their nationality, that their bloodline made them the people of God. And he says, you weren't the people of God. But you are now. Because it wasn't enough just to have a certain blood running through your veins. It wasn't enough to just be, to be identified nationalistically. You must be born again. And even through the scriptures, we find it over and over again. God says, not all Israel is Israel. Not all of those who who are my chosen people are actually my people. And so it is not all who come beneath the tent to hear the word. Not all who call themselves Christian are truly Christian. There's one way of interpreting the parable that Jesus gave of the mustard seed. And, and there, are, there are many ways to interpret some parables. But one way to interpret that parable is that the mustard seed being the smallest of all seeds and the smallest of all plants, really a shrub, is the way it should grow. It grew unnaturally into a large tree. Do you remember that, that parable? And the Lord Jesus said, even the birds came and made their nest. They dwelt therein. And some have interpreted that to be the growth, the exponential growth of the church of the living God. And that could be. But another way of interpreting that is that it grew abnormally. The church of God grew abnormally large. Meaning it shouldn't have been that large. Meaning not all that comes beneath the banner of Christianity is actually Christian. And if you use the parable of the first parable... Uh, through which Christ said you can't understand the other parables until you understand this parable, the parable of the sower. If you remember in that parable, he speaks of the seed falling on the, on the wayside and the birds coming and snatching away the seed. And he said those birds, that's Satan snatching away the seed. And if you use that application with the parable of the, of the mustard seed, then you have the very enemy, Satan, living within the branches and boughs of the church itself. Certainly fits the description of the church today, doesn't it? Of Christianity today. But we have been called out of darkness into light. We once were not his people, but now we are. I can't help but think of that Old Testament book of Hosea. Turn there with me if you would for a moment. I love this account. You may remember this story. God commands the prophet to marry a woman knowing that she is going to be a harlot. A prostitute. Can you imagine going to the marriage altar knowing that the woman you're about to make a vow to God in front of concerning her is a woman who will be unfaithful to you. Can you imagine? The Bible says in the book of Hosea, chapter number one, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Berai in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said unto Hosea, Go, take thee, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. What God was going to do was give the nation of Israel a visual picture of what they had become. 
a visual picture of how they had treated their God. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Dibliam, which conceived and bare him a son. Watch this now, watch carefully. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass that that day I will break the bow of Israel, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Loruamah. Literally, it means not having obtained mercy, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. So he has this, this child, this second child. The first child uh, speaks of, uh, we'll come to a moment. The second child speaks of not having any more mercy. So God with the, each child gives a name that will de- describe and explain what he's going to do with this people. No more mercy. Then the Bible says in verse number six, she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Loruamah, for I will have no more mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when she had weaned Loruamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Loamai. For ye are not my people. That's what that means. And I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them that ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. There was a time when the nation of Israel, when the people of God were, because of their behavior and their unfaithfulness to God, God pushed them away, rejected them. They would no longer be called the people of God. But there would be a time when God would turn their hearts and they would be the people of God. Romans chapter 9 speaks about this and likens this as a reference to the Gentiles who were once not the people of God, but are now called the people of God. What an amazing thought that we used to not be the people of God. Chapter 2 and verse number 14 down to the end is an amazing portion. I don't want to read the the entirety of it. Look at it with me briefly. Verse number 14 of of chapter 2. And therefore, God speaking to Hosea, giving him an idea of what he will do. I will allure her. Now, I want you to think for a moment with me. This is speaking of what God will do to his unfaithful bride. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Even amidst her unfaithfulness, even amidst her backslidings, even amidst her whoredoms, he'll take care of her. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishai, that is my husband, and shalt call me no more Baalai, which is my Lord. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the fowls of heaven, with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword of the battle of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. 
Many believe this is speaking of that once and for all final redemption of the world. When all of God's people shall be brought to a final place of rest with their God. No more battle, no more war. We'll be lying down in safety and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel and I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy and I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people and they shall say thou art my God. That's the privilege that we've entered into. We weren't his people but now we are. We were in darkness but now we're in light. We once had no mercy, but now we do. That's the third thing that's found at the end of verse number 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You don't need me to speak long about this, but look, we were once a people who had no mercy. We were people who were waiting justice. No mercy. There was a common sense of mercy that the whole world has experienced just by waking up each day. But we knew nothing of that tender mercy. We knew nothing of those new mercies that are, are, are delivered unto us on silver platters every morning. We knew nothing of it. But now we do. God's mercy brought us out of darkness into light. God's mercy made us from being someone who was not a people of God to being brought into the people of God. It was the mercy of God. Now let me close with this. Such privilege demands action. Such privilege. If you are going to say, I once was in darkness, but I've been called out of it and into light, you would better live like it. If you tell the world that you have been born again, you're a new man, that you used to live a life of darkness, then you must take up the torch and hear the words of Jesus that say, ye are the light of the world. And a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Take up that banner, that call, because you have been brought into light. I cannot help but think of what Jesus said in that Sermon on the Mount. Those very words. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. Why did God take you out of darkness and put you into light? Not just so that you might live brightly and comfortably, but so that you might shine brightly in a dark world. Because your light will cause others, cause others to see. The Bible says there, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. What a privilege. Are you walking as a child of light? Or are you still walking in darkness? I'm amazed sometimes that we can dare to call ourselves a Christian, a follower of Christ, a little Christ, and yet live so unlike Christ. Not only do we need to shine, but if we call ourselves the people of God, then we need to live up to that reputation. 
If I wanted to have the reputation of being a man of my word, then I need to make sure that I keep my word. Because when I start not keeping my word, I lose that reputation. And if I want to bear the title of one of the people of God, I better live up to it. A child of God, one of His. That's a tall order, isn't it? But you can live it because He's given you His Spirit. The Spirit of the living God, God Himself lives inside of you. You can do it. So live it. And if we're going to say that we have obtained mercy, then we ought to be merciful people. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that same passage, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, he already told us, we we were just hearing what Peter said, we were those who did not have any mercy, we had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. Are you a merciful human being? I think about this often with my own children. I see them, and they're often, very times, often quick to point out the faults and failures in their siblings. And uh, they're very quick to point it out, what he did and what she did. We call that tattletaling. But uh, little children become big children. That's what all adults are sometimes, just big children, and they do the same thing. They may not necessarily tattletale anymore, but they're very quick to point out the faults and failures of others. But being merciful means you don't give somebody what they deserve. Yes, perhaps someone is wrong, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to point out every fault and failure in their life. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It might be that perhaps you're wearing, someone's wearing two different colored socks. You don't have to point it out. Maybe somebody didn't quite quote a verse just right. You don't have to embarrass them in front of everybody. Perhaps somebody didn't quite get something just the way it ought to be. Merciful. I'm not saying you don't correct someone, you don't help someone, but the way in which it's done is very important. Tender mercy. I can't help but think of that little parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18. I'll close with this. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 23. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him. Can I just say for a moment, there's coming a day when God will take account of his servants. A day of reckoning. When he had begun to reckon. Would you look here? If today were the day that God has begun to reckon, take account. Take account of his servants. Are you ready for that day? When he'd begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and for payment to be made. Can you imagine? The man owed 10,000 talents. The Bible says, the servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, literally recognizing, recognizing that he was wrong, 
recognizing the authority before him, worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. That's a picture of your salvation. A picture of your salvation. Being called on the day of reckoning before, before God and God saying, this is how much you are in debt. Look at all that you owe, all the sin you've committed. And a man could never possibly pay it back. An amount so high, a price so grand that could never ever with 10 lifetimes ever be paid back. And so the order was given. Command him to be sold, his wife to be sold, his children to be sold, and everything that he had to be sold so that payment could be made. And he fell down. And the plea was very simple. Lord, have patience. Or perhaps it reminds me of that little, little other little parable. Lord, be merciful to me. Have mercy. I'll pay it back. He could never pay it back. And the Lord was moved with compassion, loosed him, and forgave all the debt. That's what happened to you and I. When you were called out of darkness and into light, when you were made from being uh, someone who was not of the family of God, brought into the family of God, made a people of God, obtaining mercy because of that, then God forgave all your sin, all your debt. You owe him nothing. What a privilege. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence. Think about that. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet. Sound familiar? And besought him saying, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. The exact words he had just said to his master about a debt that was 600,000 times more than what this fellow servant owed him. And the Bible says when his fellow servant said, have patience with me, that he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. Now, the worst part about it was this. If he's been thrown in prison, there's no hope of paying the debt. Because if you ain't got the money to pay the debt before you go into prison, how on earth are you ever going to earn the money when you're in prison? So here's what he said. I know you're never going to pay it off. You just rot in prison. I'd rather you rot in prison than work in prison pay it back some of it. The Bible says that when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. 
so likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Think about that. Mercy. Mercy. He doesn't deserve mercy. She doesn't deserve mercy. Do you know what he's done to me? Do you know what you've done to God? Mercy. And if we're going to claim these titles, these rich titles that belong to the children of God, then we better live it. We better live it as lights in the world, as the people of God, as merciful. We've got to live it. Your faith has got to be more than words on a page. It's got to be deeply practical, lived out. People have got to see in you what you've seen in Christ. Are you living that way? I, I'd, I love to I'd be identified with these titles, but at the same time, I'd love even more to live them, to live them. To acknowledge what it is to be in Christ. To acknowledge what it is to be called out of darkness. And the expectation that we have to walk in light. I want to live that. To be no longer a child of this world. To be no longer a child of Satan. But now to be a a part of the people of God. The family of God. I want to live that. A man of mercy. Because we serve a God of mercy. A man of grace. Because we serve a God of grace. A man of compassion, because we serve a God of compassion. Can I just say for a moment, if all that your religious experience does is give you with a warm, leave you with a warm, tingling feeling inside, you've missed it. If all you're looking for is that sort of fuzzy existentialism, that warm, out-of-body experience, then can I tell you, you can get that at the local pub. But what you cannot get at the local pub is a changed life. Amen. The Spirit of God brings that. That's what we need. I hope you get a fuzzy feeling every once in a while. Nothing wrong with that. But I hope you live a changed life. I hope that our lives match these descriptions. Then people won't have to wonder whether or not we be the people of God. It'll be very clear and very evident. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father in heaven, it is our privilege to be identified with thee. I know, Lord, that there may be many days, there are many days, when we simply live far below what has been given unto us. There must be days, Lord, when our lives bring far more shame than they do honor and glory to Thee. And for this, Lord, we ask forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that there would be a real changing, that our lives may bring forth a fragrance that is well-pleasing, acceptable in Thy sight, that our lives may shine brighter 
and brighter until the coming day. Help us, we pray. I pray that as we draw closer and closer to that day, that it would be more and more obvious that we are indeed the people of God. But as we approach the day of our Lord, faster and faster, I pray that we would become more and more merciful, more and more compassionate, more and more loving, more and more gracious. Oh, change us, Lord, I pray, that we might be thy children and represent thee well. We thank thee for thy patience with us, Lord. Help us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.